for evil. Uh, okay, want to say hello to Anton? That's Anton. Hi, Anton. Hello, Anton. <laughs> <laughs> I just asked your name. Good to have you here. Okay, guys, here goes. Hey, is this loud enough for me? Okay. Alrighty, guys, we're talking about standing in the day of evil. How do we stand in the day of evil? And um, Ephesians 6.13 talks about it, where it says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. It starts off saying, put on the armor of God, but then it goes on to say that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. So, want to talk about how do we stand in the day of evil? How do we stand in the day of evil? And uh, how do you define an evil day? An evil day may be defined as a day when there's danger, when there's crisis, when there's hostility, when there's persecution, when there are overwhelming circumstances, when there's sickness, when there are delays, when there are wrong turns you've taken, when there are obstacles in your path. Or let's put it this way, a day that isn't filled with good things because he fills our years with good days. So any day that is not filled with good things from God is not a good day. And yet God makes only good days. Therefore, an evil day is a day when there is danger, when there is crisis, when there is hostility, when there is persecution, when there is overwhelming circumstances, when there is satanic attack, when there is sickness, when there are delays, when there are wrong turns or obstacles. On that day, how do you stand? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalm 37. Because Psalm 37 talks about what to do on days like that. So if you go to Psalm 37... We'll just read from verse 1 to 15. Psalm 37, 1 to 15. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade away like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bow to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is a price. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bow shall be broken. So at the end of the day, when you look at Psalm 37, 
It's almost like the environment around Psalm 37 is one of wickedness of people that are scheming evil. And then in the middle from verse 3 to 7, David talks about ways to stand in the day of evil. Trust in the Lord, verse 3. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. Be still before the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to lead to evil. So we're going to look at Psalm 37 from verses 3 to 7 to see how to stand in the day of evil. Guys, the first thing we need to do in the middle of evil, in the middle of a day that is as such evil is <coughs> I'm trying to clear my throat. Trust in the Lord. See, Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the song. Yeah, actually the verse too. So that's what Psalm 20 verse 7 says. Guys, here's the thing. Eh? When you're surrounded by evil, remember that the opposite of trust is what? The opposite of trust is? Sorry? Suspicion. Suspicion. Unbelief. Unbelief. Distrust. Yeah. Distrust. That's a smart one. I thought of that. Lack of trust. Lack of trust. That's even smarter from Australia. <laughs> Fear. Guys, all that is true, but the opposite of trust really is... We often think that the opposite of trust is doubt. The opposite of trust is distrust, which is kind of true. The opposite of trust, like Ruth so elaborately said, is lack of trust. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the opposite, and some say the opposite of trust is doubt, because when you, whenever you think of faith, you think the opposite of faith is doubt. And yet the opposite of trust really is self-reliance. Because some trust in chariots, and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So, our problem with trust, guys, all of us will have doubt. We'll come to doubt later. But our problem with trust is not so much that we don't trust, it's that very often we go down to self-reliance. And this happens to everybody, even the best. So, Saul, the King Saul, what happens to him? At one point, he's, he needs to inquire of God. So where does he go? When everything else runs out, he goes to the witch of Endo. If you, you see it in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 28. Don't follow Saul to the witch of Endo, of Endo when you want to inquire of things of God. Guys, here's the thing that happens to us, eh? When we inquire of God and don't hear an answer, we have our own little people in Endor who help us figure out how to work things out. We switch to self-reliance because we operate on deadlines. So when we see that God doesn't seem to be doing things within a deadline, our usual method is to go and find someone in Endor. It doesn't have to be a witch. Go and find someone in Endo who can give us some kind of an answer. Because when we are inquiring of God, there seems to be relative silence. So why not choose the next best answer? You know why I can't tell you when I'll be going to Kenya? Because I can't figure out when I'm supposed to go. 
So the best thing to do then is to find the cheapest ticket and cheapest day and fly. But that's like going to Endor and finding someone in Endor who can tell me what to do. Don't follow Saul to Endor. Don't inquire outside of God. Let God direct you to a place if he wants to. But may you always remember that self-reliance is waiting in the wings to help you with this factor called trust. That's how it works. Don't, don't follow Abraham to Egypt. I was fascinated with this. The father of faith. Go to Genesis 12, 8. I'm surprised I didn't see this all these years. Genesis 12, 8. Um, um, Derek, whenever you put water on the piano, make sure Chris doesn't see it. Just between you and I. Yeah. But she doesn't know about it, so it's okay. It's all okay. Yeah. Genesis 12, 8. Genesis 12, 8. In 12, um, 4 it says, God, God tells him to get up and leave. And so Genesis 12, 4 says, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then look at Genesis 12, 8. Um, he built an altar to the Lord, and then he was supposed to go to Canaan, because that's where God is taking him. From there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, and I... And uh, verse 9, and Abraham journeyed on still going towards Negev. Now listen to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt. Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. He wasn't supposed to go to Egypt, guys. He was heading a different way. A famine hits the land. Where does Abraham go? Goes to Egypt. Guess what happened there? That's where he gets into complications with his wives and concubines. And look at Genesis 13.1. So, so Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and walked with him back into Negev. Don't follow Abraham into Egypt. That wasn't the route to Canaan. But because there was a famine, he decides to take a detour. And in the process in Egypt, Stuff happens. When he was supposed to, and in 31 he goes back to Negev. Don't follow Abraham to Egypt. As in guys, don't resort to a provision outside of what God is saying. Don't resort to a provision outside of what God is saying. So easy sometimes in our desperation and in the face of deadlines to resort to a provision outside of what God is saying. Don't follow Asa to the physicians. In 2 Chronicles 16, you'll find that there was a king called Asa. And he became really diseased. And the Bible says, God was pretty cheesed off with him. Because instead of seeking God first, he went to his physicians. And as th there is this um, understanding that in those days, at least from a Jewish perspective, most physicians that existed were pagan, heathen, occultists sometimes, or physicians that practiced pagan arts. And so here is King Asa, the king of Israel, now going to his positions instead of going to God. Again, self-reliance kicks in where I should try not to seek my remedies outside of God. 
in the day of evil, one of the things that Satan will prompt you to do is to go into self-reliance, to short-circuit the situation and get out of the problem. But it is in the day of evil, when things are not working, when delays are happening, that is when I need to stand and say, I will trust in the Lord and not in horses and chariots. Guys, at the end of the day, what options do I really have? I know God now. I'm stuck. I've got a secret. So what is my option? Very simple. Hebrews chapter 11, 6. There are two sides to Hebrews chapter 11, 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So what's Jacob's responsibility? What's Marcus's responsibility? I will trust you, O God, because I want to please you. And what is God's responsibility? Aha, you're seeking me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6b. Because you have sought me, I will reward you. For I reward those who seek me diligently. What option do we have? We don't have any other choice. And occasionally, when we switch into self-reliance, then God has to send the Holy Spirit to clean up. In the day of evil, trust in the Lord. Trust will always be demonstrated in risk, in persistence, in patience, in praise. That's how you'll know whether you're trusting in God. Man, your deadline is looming. Man, you may not even go this week. Man, I don't know how this is going to work out. And yet there's this persistence, there's this risk-taking, there's this patience, and then there's this ridiculous thing called praise that Abraham indulged in. So it doesn't matter whether you're the one facing the evil, or whether it's the people or situations around you that are causing this evil day to happen in your life. This is our only option, guys. Doubt will assail you. Doubt is common to all men. There's nobody who's immune to doubt. So doubt will come. How do we deal with doubt that normally we try to feel better? Feeling better doesn't take doubt away. The only way to get out of doubt is to go back into the Word. The only way to get out of doubt is to go back into the Word. Prayer does not heal doubt. Ice cream does not take care of doubt. I've tried all these things. <laughs> Even declarations don't take care of doubt. Sometimes to make doubt go away, I'll walk on my balcony decreeing things. And at that time, doubt disappears. But when I go back into the living room, it's back. The only way doubt goes is when I go back into the Word, because it's a Word that chases doubt and establishes faith. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing of, by, of the? Hearing by the Word. So how is that different than your balcony decrees if you're reciting scripture on the balcony? Um, sometimes it's more like a chant than an understanding. I want to understand the word and catch a glimpse of the Father. It's one thing to repeat the words of the Father. It's another thing to see Him in the words. You can see that with husbands sometimes. Husbands will be telling someone else of how wonderful their wives are, how wonderfully they cook, how beautiful they are and all this stuff. And you can see that the words are coming out like a fountain, but there's no heart in it. I want to see God in the words I speak, even if those words are from Him. That's when you know it's real. So how do you manifest the coming from the heart if it's not there? What we did this morning. What we did this morning. How did we start worship? I, I turned off my mic and I said, let's begin to tell God who we think He is. And if you did so, at some point you'd have realized, oh shucks, I actually believe what I'm saying. He is actually good. He's brilliant. He's wise. He treats me like a son. He treats me like his own son. 
His grace is there to pick me up from every failure. His truth is there to steady me to walk again. And slowly you realize this is true of him. I want to say this earlier. I would have said it later. Guys, sometimes our struggle is not with sin. Our struggle is with character flaws that we have. And these character flaws have not been transformed by the Spirit of God. So it's not sin we are struggling with. It's deep character weaknesses that keep repeating themselves. And we never make accurate moral choices because of that. So, for instance, if I have a deep character flaw that makes it impossible for me to see the Father as kind and good and fatherly, then the sin I will struggle with continuously will be heaviness, sadness, inability to get out of my situations, inability to trust God. I may have faith, but I won't be able to trust God. I struggle with the sin of distrust. And why am I struggling with the sin of distrust? Because I have a deep-rooted character flaw. And what is that character flaw? This weakness of not being able to see God as Father. So what do I need to do? Take my character flaw and say, Father, here I am. I am not able to see you as good. I struggle to see you as a father. Spirit of God, work with this character flaw. Change it so that I won't have to fight with certain sins. Some of us are in bondage to pornography or lust or sexual sin. Why? Because at some point when things don't begin to work well, when the spouse gets angry or the boss gets angry, when finances are short, it's like a trigger that goes off and you resort back to the computer and watch porn on it. Your struggle is not really with porn, it's with a deeper character flaw. This is not psychobabble. I would say bring certain areas of our lives where there are strong weaknesses and say, Father, I'm tired of this sin. It doesn't seem to go. But here is the flaw, Father. I've got a problem here. That's how you work with it. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many people come and talk to you. It won't matter. Matt and Marcus are young. If they find their character flaws right now, imagine what can happen to them when they grow up. And if they don't find it, you can send a hundred youth pastors to them. They'll sit and listen to the youth pastors and take what the youth pastors say. And the next day, back in school, they'll be different. Why? Because the character flaw hasn't been healed. And they grow up into men. What a shame. Yeah. Guys, doubt affirms that God uh, doubt affirms belief in God but questions God's ability and character. Strange thing about doubt is it affirms its belief in God but then questions God questions God's character and ability. It affirms belief in God and then questions God's ability. That's what doubt does. But what is even more dangerous is self-reliance because it's very subtle it's very subtle so trust in the Lord that's the first thing you do in the day of evil the first thing you do is trust in the Lord in the day of evil the first thing you do is trust in the Lord and the greatest opposition to you will come from self-reliance because there will be deadlines to meet and we are so scared of deadlines that God has to do something otherwise I will have to do something for him. Yeah, if you work for someone else, if, if a bank is behind you, if 
um, a project has to be completed, if decisions have to be made, and you begin to panic and you take it into your own hands. You either go with Saul to Endor, or you go with Abraham to Egypt, or you go with Asa to occult physicians. I'm not saying that's the kind of extreme we go to, but we end up being self-reliant. The next thing that needs to happen on the day of evil is trust in the Lord. The second one is do good. Do good. In the day of evil, do good. In the day of evil, do good. Now what do I mean in the day of evil, do good? Guys, Romans 12, 21 says this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It doesn't sing it, but it says it. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You'll find that in the day of evil, when things are breaking down around you, you'll find that in crisis or when confronted by evil, there is a tendency to be overcome by evil. And what do I mean by that? You'll find that you're becoming snappy. You're becoming angry. You're becoming irritated. You're becoming malicious. You're fretting. David recognized this in Psalm 37. He said, stop fretting. Forsake wrath. Because on the day of evil, there's this tendency to begin to be overcome by evil. You'll find that every time. What happens then is it's an attempt by the enemy to see if you can be unequally yoked. It is an attempt by the enemy to see if you can be unequally yoked. Hey, it's on the day of evil that you need to be yoked with God. But irritation, anger, intimidation, fretting, malice gives Satan more to work with than the Holy Spirit. It gives Satan more to work with than the Holy Spirit. And his attempt is, can I get Jacob to be unequally yoked with me in this crisis? Because that will prevent his ascent. His ascent out of the pit will be slowed down because he is so fretful, angry, irritated, intimidated and malicious in the day of evil that he can't even think straight. I have more to work with in his life than the Holy Spirit right now. What an old trick this is, man. And we've been falling for it every time. Our spouses know how to leave us alone when you're going through a crisis. That's when you need your spouse the most, but that's when they stay away the most. Why? Because they know how irritable you are. I don't know, that is, this is only me and my spouse, but it happens to you guys too. Because all of you look like it's not real. Guys, you can't overcome when you're anxious, angry, or intimidated. You're giving the enemy more to work with than the Holy Spirit. I mean, David, David does something exceptional in the middle of a severe crisis in 1 Samuel 30, verse 11. So here's what's happened in 1 Samuel 30, verse 11. David has a whole bunch of riffraff around it, 400 of them, and their families. They're in a place called Ziklag. David decides, I've got to go and fight. So he goes out to fight, and this group of guys called the Amalekites come, and they take David and his two, take David's two wives and the children, take everybody's families, and they go off. David comes back and the whole city is burnt and his family and children are missing. The men want to stone him saying, we followed you, look what's happened to us. And so they go after the Amalekites because God says go. And he's going and they found, find an Egyptian, an Egyptian slave who's been left there by one of his Amalekite masters. And look at what David does. He's in the middle of a crisis. Kids are gone, wives are gone, the people are willing to stone him. And in the middle of the crisis, he finds his Egyptian and they bring him to David and this is what David says. Man, am I speaking fast? 
This is what David says. David says, no, that doesn't work either. <laughs> so this is what David says. David says, feed him something. So they bring bread to him. And he eats a lot of bread. Then he says, give him some raisins too. So he eats some raisins. Then he says, guy looks tired. Give him some water. Give him some water. And now the guy, he's a servant of an Amalekite. That's as low as you can go. And he's an Egyptian. And so after the guy is fed and his thirst is slaked, he is now revived because he hasn't eaten for three days. And after all that is done, David says, hey, can you help us? Tell us where the Amalekites have gone. And the guy now says, I can help you, but please don't take my life. And I'm thinking to myself, in most movies, you beat up the guy and torture him, cut off his fingers to get the truth out. Or waterboard him if you are American. Oh. Erase, erase, erase. My name as usual is Jason. Jason. <laughs> and so, um, and my last name is Dirks. <laughs> That's it. Okay, so here's what happens. It's almost close to do it. Oops. <laughs> Anyways, so what happens is he shows tremendous kindness to a guy in the middle of a crisis. I, it doesn't look like it was a ploy. It was just the way David was. Made. Do good in the middle of evil. Because in the day of evil, we have a tendency to do exactly opposite. And it doesn't help. It slows down your ascent from the pit that you are stuck in. Any questions before we go? No, I didn't mean you. Any questions before we go? I heard Diana say something. Okay. Next one. In the day of evil, dwell in the land. Dwell in the land. In the day of evil, dwell in the land. In the day of evil, dwell in the land. As in, guys, whatever God has already told you before and during the time that you are stuck in this bad situation, be established and fixed in what God has told you. Be established and fixed in what God has told you. Because very often, what happens in the day of evil is, we start looking for greener pastures. Because we think, if we can somehow get out of this situation, go somewhere else, everything will be okay. Abraham did that, he went to Egypt. Elimelech did that. Elimelech was in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so where does he go? He goes to Moab. And that's where Ruth and Naomi and all that happens. The guy dies there. Leaves the house of bread to go somewhere else. Why? Because when a famine came, he didn't necessarily seek what to do. He leaves. One of the things we do when in the day of evil is we try to find the greenest pasture next door so we can jump into it and we think everything will be solved. Doesn't get solved, guys. Dwell and be established in what God has already told you. Instead of looking for a safer and better place. Guys, the safest and the most dangerous place is wherever the Holy Spirit is asking you to be. It's safe for you and it's dangerous for the enemy. The safest and the most dangerous place in the world is wherever the Spirit of God is asking you to be. Which is why it is important that I find out when God wants me to leave on a trip and when to come back. Because I want to be in the safest and the most dangerous place in the world, which is where safe place in God and dangerous place because the enemy is now scared because I am operating exactly as God is telling me to. In the day of evil, make sure that you dwell in the land, that you don't jettison. See, here's another thing. Dwelling in the land is feeding on his faithfulness. Huh? The more evil the day, the more you eat the word. 
the more evil today, the more you eat the world. The more evil today, the more you acknowledge how much the Father loves you. The more evil today, the more you acknowledge how much the Father loves you. Let me say that again. The more evil the day, the more evil the day, the more you feed on the world. Because what else is going to sustain you? And the more evil the day, the more you acknowledge the Father's love for you. And so Matt will ask, so does that mean that we just say, Father, you love me, Father, you love me, Father, you love me? And Jacob will answer, no, Matt, that's not what we'll do. We will acknowledge the Father's goodness out of what the world says. Those are the days when I really need God as a father, man. And I need to realize it because he's always being father to me. And the other thing, guys, in the day of evil, dwell in the land by finding people who won't feed your lament. Who won't feed and mollycoddle your flaws. Who won't feed your fears. Who won't feed your faithlessness. Be careful. Huh? Sometimes people call you because they know that if they talk to you, you'll give them bucket loads of sympathy and nothing else. And if you sense that that's what they're calling you, keep the call short. Because everybody wants sympathy during a hard time. But may your words instead be Rema and Ruah inspired, as in the Word of God and the Spirit of God inspired. Maybe not feed someone else's faithlessness and lament. What good is it? You show sympathy and give them self-pity. What, what good is it going to do? You're going to be best friends. That's about it. But you're a really bad best friend. Any questions before we go? Any comments? Any disagreements? Next one. On the day of evil, delight in the Lord. Aha! In a church I go, uh, have been to, <laughs> there's this pastor, when people get very quiet, he, he gets them to do this exercise, which I'm not going to do with you, but it really works. And he, 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 he says it's the joy of the Lord. I'm not very sure of this. So he goes, just follow after me. And so they'll, they'll say, ha-ha. And the whole church will go, ha-ha. Then he'll go, ha-ha-ha. ha Oh, come on, louder. Ha-ha-ha. ha Then he goes, ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. And the only guy who doesn't do it is Marcus and I. <laughs> Marcus is sitting there with that scum on his face saying, so now you're making me do it. That's exactly how I felt. Anyways, so we won't do that. <laughs> Delight in the Lord. Guys, on the day of evil, there's nothing as powerful as aligning your heart with the controller of the universe. On the day of evil, there's nothing as powerful as aligning your heart with the controller of the universe. With the controller of the universe. Because one of the things I do in, in, whenever I have difficult circumstances guys this is something I always do my quest is father can I see your heart on this matter so that I can adjust my way of thinking and jump into your desire always do this whenever hard times hit me 
be it on my own fault or the fault of somebody else or just some kind of uh, an enemy ploy or whatever the reason be. In the middle of a very difficult situation, my question would be, Father, can I, catch a, can, can I see your heart on this matter? Because if I see your heart on this matter, I can adjust my thinking and I can jump into your desire. I can make your desire mine and then I'll be open, willing, able, available to do whatever needs to be done. So in the day of evil, be a delight in the Lord. As in, I want to catch your desire. I want to see what you think about the situation. And adjust my thinking. So that I can jump into your desire. Because delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. How? When I jump into His desires, who can stop Him from accomplishing what He wants? Guys, I heard this line quoted by somebody and such a brilliant line. All the great men and women I've ever known, the guy said. All the great men and women I've ever known had one thing in common. They all lived like much-loved children. They all lived like much-loved children. All the great men and women I have ever known had this one thing in common. They all lived like much-loved children. Wow! They all lived like much-loved children. Wow! You live like a much-loved child. That's called delighting in your father. And sometimes if you're not able to delight in your father, unless it's clinical depression, which sometimes makes it very difficult, if you find delighting in the Lord difficult, maybe, like I said earlier, it's a character weakness or stronghold where you're unable to relish the father as good. Maybe you need to take that to the father and say, help me, O God. You know, guys, I want to say this to you. The Holy Spirit is willing to teach you directly. But the Holy Spirit uses people to teach us because usually we are either too thick-headed, stubborn, or stiff-necked to get it straight from Him. So He has to send someone in. Skin. The Spirit of God can teach you. It's a combination, isn't it? It is a combination, combination. but He'll always try to teach you. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will teach you. So there is some truth to say, oh, I don't need any human teachers, the Spirit of God will teach me. That's one part. While the church has people to teach you, so that's the second part. And then there's a third part. Because I don't seem to catch my own mistakes, because I have blind spots, because I am stubborn, God has to send someone with skin on them to teach you the very things that He's trying to teach you invisibly. What's a blind spot? Something that everybody else knows about you but you. Have we got multiple blind spots? At least you guys do. (laughs) Next one. Commit your way. Commit your way. In the day of evil, Commit your way. As in, in the day of evil, when you're under pressure to come up with solutions, come up with answers, that's when you have to hand over your direction and your journey and your habits to God. Father, I am under tremendous pressure. I got 20 pieces of advice, 40 documents to finish, and I have to get it done by this. But I'm under tremendous pressure. But this is when I choose to hand over, commit us to roll over, or to hand over my habits, 
my journey and my direction to you right now. And you do that sincerely. A strange thing happens, guys. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by God. Commit your ways to the Lord and He will establish them. Sometimes that committing is the, is the one hands-free genuine act that, that sometimes changes everything for you, even if you don't hear what he's going to tell you. He now knows that boy, this boy is desperate, and yet he comes running to me and commits hands over, rolls over things into my hands, saying, here's my journey, here's my direction, I'm under tremendous pressure, but you are God and you are Father, so here it is. And God says, good, you committed it me committed it into my hands, I will establish it. And I will make sure, Jacob, that your steps, righteous man, will be ordered by me. But the thing is, often, because we don't commit things necessarily to the Lord because of the pressure on us, we plan without God. We plan without God. We plan without God. And here's what happens when you plan without God. If you plan without God, you plan with all the evil things that may happen in mind. As in, oh shucks, we better take care of this because what if he does that? We better take care of this because what if I miss that plane? We better take care of this because what if I miss my luggage? We better take care of this. You think of every evil thing that can happen and you're like a lawyer planning things. So that's one way you plan when you plan without God. And the second thing you do is you plan for a rainy day. If God fails, if Jacob fails, if the Holy Spirit fails, if my brother and sister fail, then at least I have a plan B. And both things happen when you don't plan with God. Plan without God and you will have to plan taking into account all the evil that can happen and you will have to plan taking into account plan B's just in case God doesn't show. I would suggest to you that the way to go, if Jesus is your sample, is no plan B's. Illogical, unreasonable, absolutely. But then there's nothing practical about the Bible. And yet it's absolutely practical. The only thing that will keep you from the possibility of worrying is to bring God in as the greatest factor in your planning. The, <laughs> this is why, guys, I, I keep going back to this one instance because it's so fresh right up to this morning. Um, when the only way I can not worry about a trip to Kenya and Cape Town and back in eight days in the amount of money that I need to spend, the only way I can not worry about it if God, is if God is the major and only factor in my planning. Because if he is not, then I will have to plan taking into consideration all the eventualities and all the plan B's because I'm not sure if God is in it. And then you're not being a much-loved child. And then I'm not being a much-loved child. Then I'm fretting and fuming. In the day of evil, Commit your way. Two more. Ha! Huh. We can put five more. In the day of evil, do you still have that be still plaque in your house? You do? 
in the day of evil, rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Guys, please understand, rest is not suppressing your emotions. And some of us are very good at that. We know how to suppress our emotions where on the outside people will think you're totally like this really calm, cool dude. But in actuality, we could boil potatoes inside of you because you're like a pressure cooker. That's not rest. <laughs> you do boil potatoes in pressure cookers, right? Uh, not really. Okay, let you boil rice. We can put we can boil rice inside of you because you're that pent up. But on the outside, you're this I'm calm, the Lord's calmness is upon me. The Lord's calmness is upon me, but not inside you. Inside it's hot as hell. So that's not the rest I'm talking about. I'm t- neither is rest living in denial where um, you're like an ostrich. I've done that many times. Eh? The best way to be at rest is don't open anything. Just put your head in the sand. Don't open any letters that come. Don't answer any calls. Don't open the mail. Everything will go away. And the blooming guys don't go away. They call the next day too. Till one day a sheriff landed up at my door. That scared the heck out of me. That's a story from another generation. So coming back to what we're talking about. Rest is living in denial when your reality may actually include Goliath. It may include waves. It may include mountains like finances. It may include problems. It may include insecurities. Rest does not deny it. Nor does rest pretend to be calm when you're seething inside. But here's the thing about rest. On the day of evil, I am called to sit at a banqueting table in the presence of my enemies under his protective hospitality knowing that he is my father and that what he has said and done will be enough and that I can trust him to get me through this situation. The odd thing about Psalm 23 is he doesn't say, I prepare a banqueting table for you so that you can sit and eat with me. He says, I prepare a banqueting table for you in the presence of my enemies. As in, they're all around you, Jacob, and right when they're looking at you and trying to knock the door down, I have set a banqueting table for you where you can sit with me. And as in the ancient Near East, when a guest would come to your house, it doesn't matter how many enemies are at the door. You are under my protective hospitality. And I would rather give my children and my family away to the uh, um, uh, evil people outside rather than give you away because I will protect you. That's the kind of protective hospitality God is talking about. So in the midst of the evil day, one of the things that's so good to do, like we've been saying before, is to sit at God's banqueting table. And what does that look like? It looks like Bill Hybels puts it this way. He's the um, pastor of Billow Creek. He says that at least 15, if, if, you, if you're a working, hard-working person, so we're not, I'm not talking about Jason or me. No, actually, Jason works hard. Yeah. So I'm not talking about me. So if you're a hard-working person, will you find a chair and 15 minutes in that chair every day for the rest of your life because that's where your banqueting table begins. What is it about your present schedule? Let me actually read it out as it is, guys, because this might actually help some of us here because we are super busy. 
What would your schedule look like if God was in charge of it? What would your, and this applies to me too, as in um, it doesn't matter whether you're busy, retired or not busy. What would your schedule look like if God was in charge of it? Is your current arrangement of time working for you? What would your schedule look like if God was in charge of it? Is your current arrangement of time working for you? And here's the third one which really caught me. Your schedule is less, less about what you need to get done. It's more about who you need to become. Your schedule is less about what you need to get done. It's more about who you need to become. Your schedule is less about what you need to get done. It is more about who you need to become. When you look at it that way, you'll suddenly find that the way we allocate time is pretty messed up, right? Your schedule is less about what you need to get done. It's more about who you need to become. Love that line. So this guy suggests that you start with a chair, 15 minutes on a chair or table or whatever you want to sit on, your banqueting chair or banqueting table. That's where you start, where it becomes a habit. But during times of crisis, you have this place that you go to. And in the middle of an evil day, you sit down and say, Father, I won't survive this day if I don't put my legs up and just spend some time either feeding on your word or recognizing your love because I won't survive this day. This day will swallow me up. Some of you are going through times like that right now. Eh? If you really look at your lives over the last two months, the one thing missing is the banqueting table because the pressures on you are so intense. So intense. Yet he says, I prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Look forward to the banqueting table in the day of evil. Because it's in the presence of your enemies. The enemy is confounded by it. Guys, rest is the cleanest, strongest illustration that what God said or what God did for you is working well and you don't need to tinker with it. Rest is the clearest and strongest illustration that what God is saying or what God is doing is working perfectly and I don't need to add or tinker with it. Delight to illustrate this in your life. Eh? Jesus did this. In a boat, carpenter, amongst sailors, boats being tossed to and fro, large waves, large wind. Rest is the clearest and the strongest indication that illustrates that his father said, row across. His father said, go to sleep. And rest is the clearest indication that what God said and what God do is doing is working well. And Jesus does not have to tinker with it. He doesn't have to mess with the wind, doesn't have to mess with the waves, grab a pillow and go to sleep. Show me a man 
who is at rest in crisis, and I will show you a man who knows God. Not a man who's pent up inside, inside and out when he's at rest. I know men who are calm on the outside, but are steamed up inside. Why? Because I've been there. I've done that. I do that every now and then. Show me a man who's at rest, and I'll show you a man who knows God. In the middle of crisis. Satan's intent, guys, is to draw you out of rest into insecurity and flailing. I got up at 5.30 this morning, insecure and flailing. I need to know whether I should go to Kenya. How come you're not telling me? And at 5.30, I don't wake up at 5.30 for anything. And so I remember after that, walking in my balcony as usual and saying, Father, so not at rest. This has become so important to me that it has drawn me out of my rest and I'm flailing around because I don't know what to do. It's grabbing me. I've got to stop this. So I shut down the computer, stopped checking things, shut it down and said, you'll have to do something because I refuse to step out of rest. You will have to show me what to do. I refuse to step out of rest. I refuse to step out of rest. Can I just tell a, a quick story? Sure. Um, March 25th, uh, the three-year-old upstairs stuffed something down the toilet and the water, um, the toilet overflowed and water went down my wall. And as you all know, a year and a half, almost two years, I had a flood in my apartment. So I came home, walked in the door, took off my shoes, and my hallway is mushy. And I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what's going on? I looked in the kitchen, my kitchen's fine, bathroom's fine, so I know it's not mine. So I went in the hallway, and the hallway was all wet. So I said, okay. I phoned and said, um, there's a problem. I don't know where it is. Um, and um, it's come into my hallway. Um, but I was totally at rest. Um, and um, they came. And the young boy who came, it was his first flood. So he actually opened up my entire outside uh, the apartment, the entire wall. I said, gee, I've never seen a wall open quite that much. Uh, anyhow, long story short, um, when they came, uh, you know, I had new carpeting, but Mara had thrown up quite a bit on the carpet. They came in, and the boy came in, and um, he was late. So he said to me, I don't want you to be mad. And I said, believe me, I'm not mad. Don't worry about it. I'm here all day. And um, he said, I'll clean your whole hallway. Wow, um, he said, just take the rug off. So he cleaned the whole hallway. And I also was having trouble with my kitchen tap. And the boy who came um, to do the outside wall, he said, uh, the, the head guy said, you get in there and you fix Joan's tap immediately. I don't want you to leave today. So I got the whole hallway clean. Um, but there was one other thing I've got to mention. Um, they didn't clean the, uh, they didn't redo the wall for um, a month. And I said, Lord, could you have them come back and put that wall? Uh, a week later, um, again, they hadn't come. And I said, Lord, could, could you please bring those workmen back? Third week, I'm sitting there going, Lord, could you please bring the... And I went, oh, Father, forgive me. What am I doing? What am I doing here? And I just prayed, I, the little foxes. I said, I take the little foxes, tie their tails together, and I declare those workmen will come and fix that wall. Next morning, I woke up, and I hear the guys out there. 
And the man says, you, you get the crew in here and you fix this wall, and the next day it was done. Amen. So, One of the things God. that happens with rest, guys, is you do in five years what would have otherwise taken you 35 years. That's the other thing that happens with rest. Things get accelerated because you're refusing to take things into your own hands. So God does in five years what would have taken you 35 years. The reason I took off my mic is I've been shouting so loud that the mic has been off all this time and no one realized it. So, so nothing's being taped except what's being taped on video because uh, the mic is off, Matt, just so you know. Yeah, it helps if you turn it on. No, it is on. The batteries are dead. Yeah, so I don't know when they would die, but I've been shouting my heart out thinking uh, I'm not loud enough. So now I know. Guys, Satan's intent is to draw me out of rest into insecurity and flaming. So try not to. Here, here's the thing. Let me end the whole thing on rest like this. When external circumstances jettison rest from your life, then those same external circumstances will frustrate your relationship with the Father. Think of that. Ponder on that. When external circumstances jettison rest out of your life, and the external circumstances can be anything. It can be a problem with your spouse. It can be a problem at work. Some of us lose rest just because of the threat of fear. Some of us can lose rest because of the threat of fear. As in, this could happen because it happened to my neighbor and you begin to panic. When external circumstances jettison rest from your life, then those very circumstances begin to frustrate your relationship with the Father and the day of evil gets worse because the day of evil is meant to do exactly that, bring you out of rest into flailing and insecurity and shortcuts. If you are the son of God, what was Satan trying to do? Bring Jesus out of the rest of his place in the Father. Bow before me and I will give you all the kingdoms. What was Satan trying to do? Lure him out to get to a goal quickly, coming out of the rest that he had in his father, which perhaps would be in the cross. And it did. And finally, Shane, this message was a good one to take, man. I've got it on my little, little. Um, Great! If you can give it to Chantal or Wayne and see if they can do something yeah, with it. Yeah, because I, I downloaded it on my computer. They can download it on the computer. Yeah, because this would be very worth listening to again. Uh, recommended by the preacher himself. Shameless, but true. Wait on the Lord. That's a final one. Wait on the Lord, guys. I, I know you've heard this before, but. The whole idea of weight in the Bible, whenever the word weight is used in Psalms by David, it's the same kind of waiting when your wife has been away for a long while and she's finally landed, her plane is at the airport and you're standing there near the arrival and you're craning your neck looking out for her. Even if you don't mean it, you better do it. <laughs> so the point being, the point being, weight carries in it eager anticipation where the neck is craned up looking for. That's the kind of weight when God says wait. That's the kind of weight we are talking about. And so, in Psalm 37 we see that in the day of evil, 
wait on the Lord as in wait with eager expectations because know this that delay is not denial delay is not denial so often we think delay is denial delay is not denial Hebrews 10 36 it says with patience and in some versions with perseverance continue therein as in Continue doing the will of God and you will inherit the promise. That's what it says. As you continue therein, if you have to catch a few foxes that are spoiling your vine, so be it. Catch those foxes, tie their tails together, set their tails on fire and send them into the enemy's field. Send them to Boston. They beat us two years ago. (laughs) <laughs> Something still I haven't got <laughs> Guys, in Psalm 37 it says, For evildoers shall be cut off. But I could have said Toronto, but I did. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. Guys, have you noticed in this entire thing about the evil day? Nowhere does it say, On the evil day attack the enemy. Because as good charismatics and Pentecostals and Baptists, our reaction to anything that is evil is we got to take up animal possessions, bind up, cast out and all this stuff. And yet throughout this entire thing, there is a place for that. I'm not denying it. But throughout this entire thing, have you noticed? David is surrounded by evil, surrounded by the wicked, bows are being drawn, spears are being held, and through it all, David does not talk about attacking the enemy. He talks about all these things that are very possible to do. Notice how attacking the enemy is not part of this equation. This is how it works, guys. I pray God that uh, either Jonah Wayne makes this available so you can go listen to it a few times. Because this happens to us, eh? Jesus said this. In the world there will be trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And in the day of evil, you have to have these things ready in your holster to pull out and start shooting. These things work. These things work. God is for you. Can you can you say that? God is for me. God is for you. God is for you. Yeah, say it a couple of times. Let's try this. No harm will come if you try these exercises. At least I'm not telling you to turn to the person on your right and say, God loves you. <laughs> God is for you. God is for you. No, you have to say God is for me. God is for you. God is for me. He is for you. He is for me. Young man. He is for you guys. He is for you. He is for me. God is for me. It's not against me. It's not neutral. He is for me. God is for me. Questions, comments, otherwise we're done. Tell you also on Wednesday, uh, Renita and uh, the white one.